Welcome to another episode of Season 3 of the Pandway Podcast. As usual, you can find our episodes on YouTube, Facebook, and your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Spotify or Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, you pick it, we're there. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash the Pandway Podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at the Pandway Podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store. So if you head over to thepandwaypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise and who knows what might come down the pipeline. All that I can hope is you take me with you when you go. I guess I should have known I can't leave with you when you go. We, we would get the, the notifications when um, North Korea would do like their nuclear mis- their nuclear tests. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, like when the one the, when the big one goes off, there's not going to be a notification. It's just going to go off. Yeah. And yeah. so I was sitting I was I think I was Skyping my girlfriend at the time and like the whole house just shook. I was like, oh, fuck. Did it yeah. just happen? And I'm like <laughs> looking outside like I don't see any mushroom cloud like uh, and it turned out it was a it was an earthquake. But like my first thing thought was like that was soul. Soul's gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't think about that, like being in South Korea and just waiting for shit to kick off. Dude. <laughs> Cause they, they were that was when they were up to some they were they were quite busy when I was there. They were they did a couple mm. nuclear tests while I was there. Mm. They did like some artillery salvos when I was there. They were they were pushing the limits. Yeah, that had been so around that, the time when Daddy killed over and Junior was coming into power, I think. Right? It was well after that. Well, yeah, that's probably yeah. 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was the, the last year of Obama's uh, administration. Mm. So they, I, think, I think they were kind of just, mm. they knew he's, you know, kinda, he's on his way out. You know, they're just yeah. going to see what they can get away with. Mm. Um, Speaking of 10 years wild. ago, 10 years ago, Curtis and I were getting spun up to deploy to Panjway. Uh, yeah. 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 That would have yeah. been uh we deployed in March. March. I actually I think this within uh two or three days of right now is when I arrived at Fort Stewart. Mm. We would have been at NTC around this time. You were. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Yep. But today's Never had guest... to go to that place. Yeah. Today's guest it was uh quite a few years uh before we went there. So uh David. I'd like to introduce you to the Pandora Podcast listeners, and for those of you watching on the YouTube, so you'll see he's representing the brand with a Duck Duck Goose t-shirt, available now in the Pandora Podcast store. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, and also the the sweet, the sweet, sweet Spring Break Kandahar koozie, which yeah, that's right. if y'all yeah, buy enough of them, we'll make a Spring Break Kandahar t-shirt, just saying. Off. That's the Duck yeah. Duck on the back. And that might be the first and only time we will ever shamelessly plug merch. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, uh, David is joining us, um, and David has the distinction of being one of the uh, one of the few American conventional units to operate in the Horn of Panjway prior to uh, operations being handed over from the Canadians in 2011. So he's here to talk about one of the operations that he did while he was a company commander. And uh, we're David, we appreciate you reaching out, appreciate you uh, agreeing to join us. And since you obviously are a listener of the podcast, you know what we're going to do next. We're going to ask you to uh, give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you ended up uh, in the unit that you ended up going to the Panjoy with. Yeah. Um, so I'd say, you know, I grew up in Michigan, kind of, um, you know, maybe somewhat typical uh, Midwestern upbringing, um, lower middle class family, um, you know, joined the army, I think, because uh, um wanted to do something important and uh i figured out at a young age i wasn't going to be in the nba or nfl and so i was like well this is pretty cool and um i remember someone telling me that uh i could get school paid for and that how to do that so um you know before too long i found myself going through rotc and um commissioning from uh, western michigan university as a uh, infantry officer um went through all that the um, subsequent training for that um, was assigned first with the uh, 82nd uh, where I did one tour in Iraq um, went to the career course came back and then joined uh, 3rd Brigade 101st uh, who um, I think it must have been around January time frame I think of um, 2010 uh, deployed to P2K as it was referred to back then so host uh eastern and western pactica and then pactia i think was part of the whole area as well so i started out on brigade staff there made my way down to the battalion um staff as we deployed and then partway through took command and and that's where the whole adventure of uh kandahar panjway kind of started off so now when did you go to ranger school 2005 okay and that's when you the met, last uh, the Kitchen. first easy class as i like to yeah. say. First easy class <laughs> most people claim to be in the last hard one i'm in the first easy one and i'm sticking to that story yeah, so we, like so that. we should tell brian kitching that he went through ranger school when it was easy yeah i guess he would you okay. know, he probably graduated before me though because i think he was <laughs> with me at some point and he went and graduated and i was still you know getting trained up <laughs> it took me i think it took me a little longer to pass that phase in my career than him but i'm yeah. still gonna tell him he had it easy yeah he had the first yeah. easy class yeah <laughs> maybe the easy class was the one i like caught up to me and then i joined it or something but <laughs> no, you can't ruin this we have we yeah. have to tell brian that he, yeah, he didn't do it when it was hard yeah yeah <laughs> i used to have uh so when we would, we would do company runs i had i, I would I would usually sing cadence because most people have no sense of time, and so that drove me crazy. As like as a as a drummer, you know, that drove me crazy. For somebody to get there and sing, and I used to have this this little litany at the end of a cadence where I would shit talk other other units, but like, you know, so and so ain't shit, Rangers, Rangers ain't shit, and then I get down, I go mechanize, and we're the shit. <laughs> oh, kitchen, kitchen always. Uh, I think he appreciated that one. We're the yeah, shit. Yeah. Rangers ain't shit, but mechanized, we're the shit. Yeah. We're definitely not the shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, everybody's got a, everybody's got a role to, to play. 
Yeah, yeah. That's, that was a good officer answer there, David. Some of it's still Your guys' is role to play before Panjway. So what was the, the deployment like, especially up in eastern Afghanistan, leading up to the Panjway stuff? I mean, I imagine it was a totally different ball of wax. Yeah, it was. Um, it was an interesting deployment altogether because um, – you know, I, I, you know, I was hanging out on staff waiting to get my chance to, you know, um, get put on the team. But, uh, you know, all those guys were out in East Pactica and, um, you know, I got to, to go out there for a little bit, um, not much to speak of. And then after we did our stint in, um, and, uh, Kandahar, we went back up to host. And so, played around in some of the districts around there surrounding that bowl. And so I got to see some of that terrain and stuff. And, um, it was interesting. Were it was just different. You know, Sharana? the weather, Is that what's the, the, the fob that was up there. It was, um, well, no, it was, um, golly. What, what, what did you, which one did you say? Sharana. So Sharana was in Pactia. Okay. Um, so it was Shank. Shank was or, actually no, Shank, in Shank, Logar, no, Shank was up. Uh, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Warp, Shank uh, is now Dalky. They changed all the names because yeah, know, yeah, whatever. I don't know why I can't remember the name of the one in Host. It's it's like the name of a drop zone in in uh, Fort Bragg, I think. Um, yeah, but it's is it the one that's it's kind of like north northeast of the city, right? Kind of like right on the edge of the mountain, big, huge airstrip. It's right in the bowl. It's like there's it's just flat all the way around there, and then mountains all the way around. Um, Golly, it wasn't Cha- you weren't in Chapman, were you? Nope, it's close to Chapman. It's a little bit southwest of Chapman. Oh, okay. I know. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that was hard abandoned when I got there in 2017. All that was left was just the airstrip. Oh, really? Yeah. And now it's that well, that airstrip is now Coast International Airport. They built like a terminal and everything over there. Oh, wow. Yeah, huh. it's like it's that legit international airport. I mean, well, I mean, I don't know if it's flying international flights now, but it was up until. <laughs> Probably is to, you know, Libya and Tunisia and Yemen and places like that. <laughs> uh, they had they had direct flights from Qatar. They had direct flights from um, Turkey and one other place that were flying in there before everything fell apart. It's weird. Being I didn't know that there was a hell base down there. there. It, was a, it was a blackout fob. And so if you were walking around there at night, um, I, you know. The specifics, a lot of these crazy stories escape me at this point. But for some reason, I remember walking around there in pitch dark for my first sergeant and just hearing some poor soldier being like, hey, sergeant, sergeant, <laughs> like, hey, what's up, bud? What are you doing? <laughs> you know, just out there wandering around looking for somebody. Um, pitch black doesn't have a flashlight. Um, hmm. But that makes sense, though, that, that if there's ever a place to have a blackout fob, I mean, you are seven miles from the Pakistan border. You got mountains on all sides. Yeah. Like, that's a prime IDF target. We got rocketed a lot there, and um, you know we actually had a couple guys, um, not not a direct hit, but they um, were injured as a uh, you know proximate to the impact and blast, and so they um, actually that happened right as we were getting ready to push off and drive down. Um, we had a couple guys, um, you know, get get busted up pretty good just by incoming and. Yeah, it's 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 weird. Um, different kind of a situation than when you're like out at um, uh, Fab Munoz or Guyane or whatever those places, the smaller ones over in East Pactica. Um, same kind of thing. You'd have a lot of rocket attacks and stuff, but um, just kind of a different feel to it, you know. 
And then when you go down to Kandahar, I remember hearing like, uh, I'm guessing it's F-16s firing up and it sounds like eerily similar to the sound of a rocket incoming. And so you oh, have yeah. dudes walking around, all of a sudden this plane's our jets are firing up and guys are all like, eh. <laughs> like <laughs> waiting for it to come in. Cause you can't, you know, you're not going to go anywhere. It's not going to, you're not going to like mm-hmm. dive and, you know, right. there's no cover. So, huh. um, but yeah, it was, you know, the, I guess to get back to it, the train in, in the environment there, you know, there is a big lull in the winter time, you know, which mm-hmm. is, I remember hearing guys talk about that. When you go down to Kandahar, it's a year round fight, you know, you get up into the, um, RC East, a lot of those areas, and there's a big lull in the winter um, because you just can't do anything. You can't get anywhere. Um, oh, no, that's just that was the biggest difference. You know, the the the, the seasonal aspect of it. But I think we, you know, we had talked earlier too that the terrain is is um, the both of it sucks. Uh, yeah. It just sucks in different ways. You know, yeah. um, you either just walk continuously up, or you walk up and down and up and down and up and down, and then you know. One place has way more IEDs <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's a little bit easier to probably maneuver somewhat, like in, in terms of like small unit maneuvering, I'd say maybe in, uh, you know, uh, down in the South. Um, but it's just, you know, you can think about it. it's hedgerows versus a mountain, you know? And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, neither particularly fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, so your your visit to Panjway and Kandahar and Panjway was a unique one in that, you know, you guys weren't deployed there. You weren't sitting on a, you know, you weren't on a FOB running combat operations there. You guys got spun up for an operation to go down there. Uh, and then you, you you hung out for a few days. So, like, tell us about the lead up to that. Like, what, what was going on that this operation got hatched? Yeah, it was pretty interesting because... Um, like I said, we were all in East Pectica. They had the surge go on. And so, you know, I was in third brigade, fourth brigade was coming over and they were taking over all of Pectica and we were going to move up North and just have uh, host. And I think still Sharana, um, or, or sorry, Pectia mm-hmm. mixing up bases and districts. <laughs> but, um, and so we really didn't know what was going on. Like, you know, the, fast forwarding the the way it actually went we all boarded you know helicopters planes flew up to host got dropped off there and i don't remember exactly when we found out it was either like like i took command and then like a week later we picked up and moved out um and they were kind of doing a rip at around that same time frame and um I don't remember if it was right before we left and went to host or just after we got there they were like hey we're gonna go down to um, Kandahar, this area called, you know, the Horn of Panjway. And, you know, we kind of started hearing rumblings of like, Hey, second brigades down there. And I remember one of the first things they told us was like dudes down there, their SOP is they wear a tourniquet and all four limb pockets. Um, because it's not uncommon to get multiple, you know, double, triple quadruple amputees. And so they were really hammering home. Like, Hey, you guys are going to like, be in a real fight and dudes are going to get messed up so get ready and um what kind of know. effect did that have on your guys to hear that i mean obviously they're already in combat so the prospect of combat's not particularly terrifying at this point but you know multiple limb amputations is a completely different mind fuck yeah you know I, it's hard to say i guess um because i kind of feel like you know i saw it kind of through my lens and um right you know, I don't know how we're, you know, I kind of think you tend to just 
think that most people are sort of in the same kind of headspace. And um, not to get too cliche, but you know, you've got different groups of, of people in your unit. You know, not everybody is in it for the same reason, and not everybody's sure. in the same headspace. And so, you might have a couple guys. Um, you know, I guess some context. I, I'm not real big on um, kind of painting a, a rosy picture of of who makes up. You know, the personnel we have, like we're a cross section of the population, and you know, it's complicated. But um, a lot of guys in, but in infantry for for not a whole lot of reasons. I would say there's a couple, and and they have um certain dynamics that come along with that and so we'll, we'll we'll translate since you're still an active g officer there are there are pieces of shit in the infantry as well <laughs> <laughs> you know there's there's people that i think that are in a way i related other people is like hey we got guys that um there's nowhere else in society for them yes yeah that's true can't, and, can't keep a job at taco bell yeah, well, that's good. That's bad. You know, it is what it is. And so, you know, and those are the same guys that are getting mad when they're leaving because you screwed them over. And, um, and at least, in, at least, and sometimes. Um, and then you've got guys that grew up with the idea of like killing people as a cool thing. And so that's that. And then there's, right. you know, different mutations of that idea that's, you know, service. And so, all of those things, you know, and sometimes it's not just one of those. It's actually probably almost never is it just one of those. But you end up with those kind of character dynamics. And so some of those guys were like, hey, man, like this is my last deployment. I'm getting out of the army. I don't need this shit. And yes. then you probably had yep. other guys who were like, all right, you know, it's like this is the next thing we're doing. Let's saddle up. And um, I don't know if I'm just, you know, I kind of think the the danger that, exists with a lot of those situations i don't know if it ever becomes that real um you know when you're just you know like it's kind of like jumping out of a plane like they teach you how to do it and you're just like all right here we go like step left step right, right. and whoop oh shit okay cool now i'm done and then you know same kind of thing and um and so it, it but it was definitely we were put on notice and it was like note taken um and so we had some right. time there that was in between and you know it probably wasn't a popular move on my part as the company commander who just come in and uh, took command um but i was like hey this isn't a time for us to like take a break like we've got to get ready for this next fight and it's going to be a different fight so what can we do to prepare for that um and so what kind of skills have atrophied you know there was like an oda on um uh, on the fob that i was like reached out to and i was like hey can you work with some of my RTOs and look at like some more um, austere field expedient means of establishing communication. And they were like, Hey, we'll bring you guys to the range too. Um, and I'm like, cool. Like we like to shoot and we'll take all that we can get. And so we kind of use it as an opportunity to train and do some things, um, kind of get our head on straight. Um, because, what was you your know, element size? Were you, a, were you plussed up full infantry company? No, I want to say we were about 80, Okay. 80, 80 folks at that point in time. Um, yeah. Details Which for our listeners, that's kinda, about, well, I don't know, what, about 60% strength-ish? Yeah, I was thinking we're like 120 is what we're supposed to be. Yeah. Ish. Um, and so, you know, but I don't know if that's super uncommon for units deployed. Um, that, was, we, that was our numbers. That about the same numbers yeah. for yeah. us when we deployed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah. you guys spin up for this op, and you, uh, the crazy thing is you fucking drove down there, which had to have been. Yeah. That was, <laughs> had to have been yeah. a nightmare. So they're like, hey, go down to the TPE yard and draw, I don't know how many it was. It was like 20 vehicles of varying, uh, Matt V's and um, what was the other one? Uh, MRAPs. MRAPs. Yeah. And so we went over and drew a bunch of those. That was a, that was a mess. Mm, I <laughs> um, imagine. Yeah. What were you guys? What were you guys driving around when you were in uh, Coast? Same same well, kind of vehicles, or so we didn't do anything driving in Host. We ended up doing some operations in Host when we came back, but when we, our transition up there was, I want to say it was like a week or two. So we went. Oh, so when they when they were in East Pactica, there really wasn't much driving to speak of. They did a little bit, and I want to say they had mostly um, MATVs. Okay. And probably some AMRAPs, but it's a mix of the both, I think. And um, But a lot of that, just based off the train, you can imagine, they didn't do a lot of driving. It was mostly just patrols from that FOB or outpost and out and back kind of stuff. Um, and, and maybe occasionally um, some some mounted stuff, but not a whole lot. So, yeah, we, we, we drew all that stuff and then we drove down. And the craziest part about it was we picked up an entire CANDAC on the way um and i want to say that was in it was after um you know we were kind of going through pectica i think we had went through the pass and we were maybe in gosney or something like that and we picked up in you know gosney or Kandak Kandak is, one of the two yeah yeah we picked up about a i think it was you know pretty close to five six hundred uh afghan national army soldiers um, what's that drive like through the kg pass I, I've, I've flown the kg pass more times than i can count but every time i looked at the road the only thought that went through my mind was like, I'm really glad that I'm not driving that fucking road. <laughs> yeah. You know, it wasn't that bad as I remember it. I feel like it, it was, um, you know, we anticipated it kind of being a shit show. Sure. Um, but, you know, when I think back about it, I don't really recall a whole lot of issues other than it being like, you know, those moments where you look around and you're like, man, any other circumstances, this is like beautiful. You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, other than that, I feel like we made it through there pretty quick. And then kind of once we got on Highway 1, it was pretty smooth yeah, sailing. For sure. I think we had one, the the route clearance team hit one, like maybe one IED. Um, you know, all the companies went and uh, were staggered by, I think, a day or two or something like that. Mm. And, um, you know, when my company was passing through, we didn't have any issues. Actually, the biggest issue we had was when we were down in one of the provinces there was um a fob that was controlled by the uh polish and um hmm. they actually fired on us in the candac as we were trying to come in um and we ended up kind of talking to them and they were like you guys are cool but those guys got to stay out there and uh we were like huh okay <laughs> so um you know that was interesting and then I, you know i remember at one point too getting to kind of like about where kandahar is and we went all the way out west to ramrod and when we got to Kandahar, we lost our route clearance package for whatever reason. And I remember the um, the Kandak commander coming over and being like, it's good. Like, we're your route clearance. Like, this is all safe. And so I was like, you know, I wasn't just like, okay. But, I, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, all right, I guess we're doing this. And so um, we took off and we didn't have any incidents getting all the way out to, to Ramrod. So, um Oh, so this the, was this was a whole battalion operation. This wasn't just your company. This was the whole 
Yeah. Everybody we were was a battalion playing. minus one company. So we okay. had one company that was task organized up to the, uh, you know, whether it was a CAV or Arista squadron at the time um, for the de- first part of the deployment, and they stayed with them. So we had our Charlie, co- Charlie company detached, and I think maybe part of HHC, I'm not positive, but then, but it was, uh, you know, Alpha Bravo, Delta, HHC driving down there. So, so the the reason you guys went down there was was to clear the horn, though, right? I mean, it was a clearing operation. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And um, you know how that was supposed to go about exactly. You know, I don't know how much that was um, planned intentionally at, at, at higher levels, but it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're sending this battalion down there, and um, you guys are gonna, you know, try to clean up the horn. Um, and at so that, that time, that, the horn was uh, the battle space was owned by the Canadians. So, how did that kind of what was what was the interaction like there? Did they? Kind so there's of nobody you as, there. Yeah, really? I don't. I don't. So you know, that's a good point. I'm. I'm not sure that. Uh, I, they, I think they probably did technically own that part. You know, Strike Brigade or Second Brigade, Hundred First was just north of us, across the river, and. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, I think we were, because I know we were task organized to them for that operation. Mm. And so I don't know if that, the horn kind of technically became part of, I guess it must have become part of 2nd Brigade's AO for that. And and because, you know, that must have been how it worked out. But it, I think it previously it did belong to the Canadians. And I think, um, was it Sparrowan Gar or whatever the uh, high ground was to the east of us there? I feel like that was sort of the limit of advance that they had, you know, for whatever reason, they weren't able to get beyond that location. And so it was just completely ghost town out there. Just shitheads making IEDs and C2 and stuff. Well, and Fob Zangabad was there too, right? So they would have been. No, that was not there. Yet. Really? That's actually, <laughs> so what was ended up being, you know, I would, I would be deployed like years later and I'd like pull up Google maps and like look around at my old stomping grounds. I'm like, oh man, look what they do with that. So the, they, I think they were calling it like the palace or something. It used to be a school just mm-hmm. north of there um, is where we set up initially. And there was two kind of, you know, I don't know, you wouldn't even call them an outpost. I mean, they were just like patrol bases that we occupied for two months. Um mm-hmm. And they were just they were just compounds, you know. One of them had an opium. Op, uh, the main one where I had my company CP, there was an opium uh, or poppy field just to the north of it that we use as our primary HLZ. Mm-hmm. And then um, maybe the actually no, the one they were calling the palace I think was up northeast of that a little bit, and that's kind of where I had a second platoon. You know, I had two platoons in my CP um, at this primary location, and just kind of northeast of that was um, yeah. I wish I remember the the names of the you know, because back then, if you looked at the maps, each little like block area had like some sort of name associated with it. Um, mm-hmm. And so when the companies went in there, it was Mushan, Taliukan, and Zangabad. And so that's how the three companies had it set up. And so when my company was Bravo. We had Zangabad. And, uh, you know, we said it was, we called it Zanga Good when we were leaving. But um, <laughs> that's up for debate. And uh, the, the headquarters company. You know, they're mostly scouts and mortars. They set up actually in the Registan Desert, believe it or not, um, you know, south of us. And I imagine that was a crappy place to hang out for a while. Um, and they yeah, would, at one point want to be there more than a day up. or two. Yeah. Well, they, I think they had talked about like sling loading um, uh, 
Connex is out to them, all kinds of wild shit they were doing to try to keep those guys from getting like fried up and dying out there. Um, eventually they patrolled up and that's where we ended up, you know, linking up with them was that there was a school there, um, which I think that I know that's where the Canadians and the ODA that came in initially ran operations out of when we ripped with them. And that's, and so, that's a little bit to the west of where Fob Zagabad ended up. It's like that okay. schoolhouse, uh, probably about down in the six, seven hundred yards to the west of where yeah. Fob Zagabad was. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, but yeah, also, yeah, yeah. actually kind of halfway between Zagabad and uh, what Bellumby ended up being becoming is kind of yep. like right between those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no infrastructure there what to, to speak of um, when we went in there. And so, um, you know, so we cut, we, you know, we drove down there, we did an operation. It's, it's almost, uh, you know, I'm hesitant to like talk about it in the sense that we thought it was back then because, you know, we did a mission. Um, I don't even know what the district was, but it was not too far outside of Ramrod and we were like calling it like a training mission, but you know, there is no such thing as a training mission with sure. Afghanistan, yeah. <laughs> but we did an operation for, for, you know, what, what purpose I, I you know, it's it's I've, I've, I'm embarrassed to say as a company commander I didn't re- truly understand what we were doing, you know I mm-hmm. knew what we were doing in Panjway but just to go out and do an op for the sake of like because the train really wasn't that similar um, at all and so then you know we did this one op came back and then we ended up air assaulting into um, Zangabad and that whole the beginning of that whole thing was was pretty nuts. Um, did all of the companies air assault in or just yours? We all we all air assaulted in and all ended up air assaulting out at the end of it. Um, no no driving any time in between. So how long at were you At one point, I believe the Canadians were going to try to like um, convoy out to us and it just did not did not happen. Mm. At what, what time of year was this? This was in end of summer. I want to okay. say we went in there around September, October. Mm. So fighting, you know, the 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 fighting is still full full swing. Yeah, even like yeah. Said, even in Canada, it's still it's a year round fight, but it does slow down a little yeah. bit in the winter time. Um, so so the ANCOP or I was it I think that's what they were referred to. They were they were partnered with the ODA, mm-hmm. and um, I think it was like General Razik. I don't know if he was still running around. When you guys were there, uh, but he was sort of a no. But I, I'm actually still in touch with him. That's pretty funny. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So he, he was he was running around with um, you know this full bird colonel from the ODA or the not the ODA but the um, SODIF that was over there, and they were the 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 plan was that those guys were going to drive. I want to say there was like three different teams, maybe. And um, they were supposed to drive up into that area and set up an HLZ for us. And so, you know, we had, uh, you know, I remember, I don't know if you guys ever used Falcon View, you know, like a good. Oh, yeah. Good company commander. Like I got Falcon View out and I printed out maps that were like as big as, you know, a planning room and like had them on the ground. And we did all these like did all our um, rock drills and everything on like imagery printed out stuff. And we planned everything out, had our HLZs and then all that went to shit the night before. Um, as those guys were coming in, they lost a couple dudes 
from IEDs. They took a bunch of contact coming in. They never, they actually, they did end up making it generally to where we were wanting to be, but none of the HLZs were cleared or set up. And so the night before we went to go infill, I, you know, we had our plan, everything was set. I remember kind of almost like, you know, I probably, um, you know, over dramatizing it a little bit, but I remember like kind of sending off the PLs and the platoon sergeants like, all right, guys, go get some rest. I'm going to go check in with the boss one last time. And, and that's where it all just kind of started. I remember walking in there and it was just like, oh, this happened. We got to change the HLZs. Okay. And I just remember ended up sticking around the entire night. Um, just the continuation of that process. Us tracking those guys moving. Like, well, you better stick around because we don't even know where you guys are going to go yet. And um, at one point, you know, if he ever sees this, he'll probably want to kill me for telling this story. But my <laughs> battalion commander comes walking over and he's like, you know, we were we had discussed this idea of, you know, going out there, doing ops for a few days, coming back out, going back out again, you know, doing multiple several day operations to to do whatever, you know, achieve whatever effect they wanted to get in that time frame, which we didn't really even know how long it was going to be. And um, so that we, you know, that was the plan. Like our plan was infill, clear this stuff, get to this X next point, And then it was sort of like, we'll see after that. There's no planned exfil. And my, but my assumption or what I was told kind of going in is you'll do this for a few days and then we'll get you out and then we'll plan the next one. And kind of as I'm sitting there and all these HLZs are getting changed and stuff like that, he kind of walks up and he's like, hey, baby cakes, you know, I need you to be able to stay there for the long haul. And I was just like, okay, cool. Like, what is, what do you mean by the long haul? And he's like, I don't know, man. <laughs> and so, okay. <laughs> all right. And so then as I, you know, we finally had an HLZ, but nothing really more than we're going to land here and do mm. whatever's the, you know, the, do the next right thing, so to speak. And yeah. as my guys start walking up to get to the HLZ, they're all carrying their stuff. And I'm like, okay, I got two things to tell you. Um, one is the HLZs we had aren't what we're, where we're landing anymore. And two, we're not going there for a few days. Like we're going to be there for a long time. And yeah, they're like, Oh, should we run back and grab more stuff and this and that? And I'm like, no, man, like we're, we're just rolling with what we got right now. So, yeah. Um, so starting off a little yeah. bit, a little bit rocky footing, uh, going yeah. in already, especially since you know, the reason that you don't have those HLZs is cause guys are getting their shit pushed in. Yeah. Yeah. So what was, uh, I mean, so how long, I mean, you guys flew out, aerosolted in, how long was it till you were getting into the thick of it? It was, so that first night wasn't bad. Actually we landed, um, we kind of handed off with that OD 18 and, um, they had just took, a casualty before that um and so you know that guy kind of hands off to me and he's like okay hey we've sort of cleared this this field right here we're good and so there's a compound you know a whole line of compounds just to the north of us and they were like hey we've got this one compound secured we're going to take you there set you up and we'll do a handoff and so that's kind of what we did the next morning we wake up um we had um somehow i had convinced that we, the the um, aviation unit to help to let us load some pallets so we had like I think two DOS maybe 
um, between however many CH-47s we had, we were palletized on the back of the ramp. And so we, you know, touched down, pushed that shit off, and then took off. And so we're like, okay, I need to send guys back to at least secure that thing and make sure it's, you know, got to get pillaged or whatever. Um, so those guys, guys go back and check, and they're like, hey, we've, you know, first thing, found an IED. And they're like, hey, sir, you remember where you were taking an E last night? They're like, yep. There's, there's one here. And it was literally just a matter of the battery not being hooked up. Right. Um, and, you know, it's probably a pressure switch or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the case with a lot of stuff in there. It's just no no power source at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was no metal or nothing. It was just a jug. And so, you know, at the, if, at, when it's dark out, you know, they weren't going to catch it with a mine detector or anything like that. Deep buried, you know, probably not a dog. So... Oh, that was kind of the start. Like, okay, here, here they are already. And then by the time we got back to the compound, when morning hit, we started taking contact from pretty much all directions. And um, we we had guys up the full perimeter of that collot, uh, returning fire. Uh, we were shooting small D's. It was, it was pretty much a death blossom from there. And, you know, at that time, you know, I was <laughs> – I, I was um, I was exercising mission command, I guess you might say. <laughs> you know, I was talking to hire, trying you know, trying to keep an idea of what the hell's going on, taking reports. But I've got multiple platoons all in this sort of um, very small area, and um, you know, they're kind of reacting to what's out there. And um, A and A is has at least a coy at that time with us, and and they're set up around a perimeter of their compound, returning fire, and it was just it was pretty heavy like that. You know, I would say probably for the first couple days until we started expanding out. And that was sort of the whole idea from the get-go was, you know, we had a whole company there. We would just sort of start expanding the perimeter, putting out into multiple um, uh, locations, setting up checkpoints, so forth, and kind of trying to expand our presence. Um, So instead of, like, getting online and walking towards the horn, you basically did some LGOPs. And uh, without paratroopers uh, and just kind of expanded your presence. But, you know, you're always coming back to the same location when you were done with your operations and what you weren't moving well, linear. So we kind of we, we let you know, we had sort of like, a you know, our AO, and we dropped down in the middle. Sure. So it was really about like, you know, I want to say it was called like Saigon or something like that was the small little area we were in sort of a east west running road. And then it kind of teed and, and headed north. And um, I want to say that's where the, they ended up calling this place the palace. Um, but, um, you know, we were sort of on the east end of it. <clears throat> we ended up patrolling west. And so they were and they were giving us um, uh, APOBs back then. And so, you know, that was kind of a cool process. Um, you know, we were shooting those down the trails um, to clear them out. I don't think we had a single sympathetic detonation from any of those two. So, um, that was our, our, well. our, our EOD buddy is not a fan of the APOB system at yeah. all. Yeah. We had yeah, some we, guys we that loved them. The they were just shooting them left and right. But yeah, you know, it's cool to me. It's cool. Yeah. It's yeah. They're real security. Cool. <laughs> well that, and you know, I kind of tried to think about like, I'm handing this space off to somebody too. And you mm-hmm. know, I was, you know, whether I was just naive or whatever, but the same reason I didn't want to occupy that school at the time either. I was like, yeah, there's. Like, I'm kind of thinking forward, like, I, you know, infrastructure and shit. Like, I don't want to shoot APOBs and, like, destroy stuff if I don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we used them initially, but 
kind of the two factors convening that like one, we didn't see much effect out of them, and two, I didn't, you know, want to risk destroying a bunch of stuff that wasn't necessary. We we kind of stopped using them after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the reason we never even bothered with them is that we had so few people. You know, the APOBS is a two backpack system. That's two bags that somebody's not carrying worth of stuff. It for I mean that on the simple side, I think that's why um, we didn't carry them. But I know uh, Russ didn't like the EOD guy because. You know, no matter how much you cleaned it up, they left metal everywhere. It's like now, now the metal detector is worthless on that path. Um, so I think those those were two reasons I think that we didn't we didn't use them much. But I know there's some units that loved them, just like firing them off left and right. And I've heard the Miklik actually is effective, the the trailer mounted one because it's just got way way more powerful explosives on yeah. it. Yeah. Well, not only did we not get any sympathetic detonations off of it, we also found IEDs after. Yeah, turn shoot them. Them. Yeah, like oh. through that same trail. And mm. so, you know, if you've been down those roads, they're not roads. It's like a go path. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah like a four-wheeler a trail. truck on. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's what I – when I say roads in the context of this conversation, <laughs> I'm talking about like right, yeah. a yeah. trail that you might, you know, run a John Deere four-wheeler down or something and maybe sure. a small pickup sure. truck. So, yeah, that was – um. You know, we expanded west, and then that's kind of where we got to a point to where it was a little more centralized in my mind. We had an HLZ we could set up there, mm-hmm. even though we weren't able to use it much in the beginning. And, um, you know, we sort of set up some security there. I pushed one platoon north, and then we kind of had those two locations. And sort of, you know, I was kind of balancing out the, you know, the, the necessity of, a, of maintaining security and the fixed locations that we were at and also being able to project some combat power. And, you know, in my mind, it was a very like dire situation of like, I took it as the enemies like coming in on all sides of us and they're effing with us all the time. And the more, t- more people patrols frequency we can have pushing people out, you know, that was buying space for us. Right. So that was kind of the, the, the thought process was to just get in there, get active, um, you know, and it sounds, sounds bad sometimes even saying it out loud, but you're like, yeah, we're, we're, you know, they call it the fuck around and find out kind of game plan. Sure. Sure. And, um, you know, that's just kind of how it is sometimes. Um, and it's, it's, to me, it was, um, a much safer way to be than to kind of hang out shelled up and, and wait for them to come come and mess with you well i mean if you don't go out then they're putting then they're just going to put more ieds right up to your doorstep that and they got close with the with indirect with our sorry with the direct fire and they oh yeah they you know what we found out really quickly is that direct fire was useless back to them um so if you couldn't use you know really it's was 60s that um was was what you would have wanted in my opinion to try to combat these guys um gustav <laughs> but uh gustav the, yeah yeah bike, if man, we'd that, have had that those. was what we've yeah <laughs> yeah well yeah. yeah, too early we for didn't we word. didn't have gustavs with us unfortunately um yeah you know we we had some smarties in the beginning but i think once we expended them i don't think we got anything that like that on resupply and so it was really yeah. the 60s and i was sort of as the company commander i'm like you know if you put it on a base plate 
now I suppose I have to clear it and that just ain't doing nothing for me you know if I can shoot in handheld then I'm good and so that mm-hmm. was sort of the the thing that I was kind of juggling um, but direct fire wasn't doing hardly anything and and um, I you know I think you guys are fans of the Kiowas um, but but for for me and I you know I'm a fan of the platform I think it's great but in that situation um, they they didn't do much for us either because the, the way that the stuff that we found later on out in the palm groves or the uh, yeah the palm groves they had set up you know these little lean-to things and had little holes and stuff where they're going to dive around by the time a you know anything came in rotary wing overhead it was they were they were gone and hidden um it's it's a really tough environment uh to 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 be a pilot and to see things oh yeah Um, yeah and the reason we like the kiowas more is you know you know, I was an Apache guy, and I obviously all the love from my own platform. But there's limitations to what imagery can see, what you know, what thermal or night vision can see. You know, that M1 eyeball has got a lot better resolution than anything on any aircraft in the world. And you know, I think the effectiveness of the Kiowa as a platform has a lot to do with the pilots flying it. You know, there's some units that are super comfortable, ten feet up above the deck, looking out, taking shots with their M4. There's some commanders that won't accept that risk, and they won't let their guys do that. So. Um, I know we had, we had, we had varied, you know, experiences with Kiowas as well. Yeah. I had a Kiowa dude up in host who like did something for me. He called an aerial blocking maneuver where he basically flew down. I swear the dude could have like put his hand up and touched the skid and he just started like spinning circles around this guy and blowing dust all over the place. And the dude like freaked out, hit the ground, started stripping his clothes off. And like we ran up and caught him and i was like holy crap like i've never seen anybody do that before and uh you know he called it an aerial blocking maneuver i was like man i didn't even know those existed in the jtacs like i didn't either and he was like he just said he wasn't gonna hurt him and i'm like okay cool but uh that didn't work out that way for us down there you know my thought was like hey maybe if i can get an apache in here and you know when you're in contact they always want you know they want you to talk them on you onto your position first which i totally understand why and um you know my thought was kind of like well if you come in you let me talk you on to those guys like we don't have to engage them right away like but at least we can get like positive control of those dudes because it just never we never seemed to be able to get those guys talked on you know it was probably had a lot to do with us too but um we just didn't have much luck with um with with uh, aviation support there and what, like with aviation showing up that didn't have any effect on their participation in the gunfight or did they just oh, yeah, keep shooting while they were up there? They okay. would leave. So at least for sure. it ended it ended the contact. Yeah. Which I guess is a good thing for some people. We were more like, no nah, man, we want to get them. Like <laughs> so them running <laughs> away wasn't a good end state for us. Um so um but yeah, that would go on. You know, I and I want to say that that was like, you know, there's two, three, four times a day at least almost every patrol that went out was making contact and it just kind of you know as the 60 days went on uh you know i'd say towards the end it kind of started to slow down um but in that beginning it was just like that every every single day because when they brought up to us you know um you know i want to say it was like the halfway point or something they're like hey you can um we can start rotating some guys out of here to like um, 
R&R kind of thing. Not really R&R, but you know, to get back to the fob, take a shower, that kind of stuff. And I sort of looked at the numbers and I was like, we're not doing it. It's, you know, it was probably a really unpopular decision <laughs> for me to make. But um, <laughs> I just looked at the numbers. I was like, no, we're going to lose a whole patrol per day or whatever it turned out to be at the time. And I was just like, and I was like, not to mention, you know, I sure as hell ain't leaving. But, um, you know, why does, you know, one guy's going to leave, another guy's going to not, like who gets to go? I was like, no, no, we're staying. We're all staying out here. Like, well, we can send like two or three guys back to grab sleeping bags and shit like that because nobody had any of that stuff um, because we thought we were going to be there a couple days. We were just like, screw it. We're going to rough it. Um, well, 60 days is a little different. So, um, you know, I did the three man. Did 60 days become the number arbitrarily or was there was there like a, a quantitative end state that met the end of the mission or did they just say hey we're gonna do 62 days because that's how long ranger school is you know <laughs> i want to actually i think it was 65 technically for me personally okay um yeah. but uh i'd have to go back and you know I, it's amazing how bad your memory is over the course of just like 10 years or whatever but um yeah i really don't know looking back you know i, I don't i don't know if it was um you know i'm sure there was a reason it probably had something to do with the surge um, the, you know, the overall plan, because they were going to bring, they did bring in, um, a Koi replaced me along with, um, a Canadian ODA as well as a U.S. ODA. And so I'm sure it had a lot to do with the timing of all those pieces getting moved around and stuff. So, um, you know, and the, and the other thing that was significant too, in the beginning in terms of manpower was we showed up and initially, they um they wouldn't resupply us um so we we once we were infilled i don't know how many days it was but there was a significant period of time which they refused to to do aerial resupply because of the danger of the hlz's and so and we went black on everything and um we had a um civil affairs team that were like they were based out of like South America or whatever. And those dudes were like cooking okra, like boiling it in the field. And, you know, dudes were like, you know, passing around like half a bag of Skittles or whatever it was, <laughs> was like the last of your last MRE. Like anybody got like a, you know, quarter of a pound cake left and, you know, whatever the, the ANA was trying to get off. There was, there were no locals really to speak of at that time. And so, um, you know, boiling water, that kind of stuff. There was just nothing. And um, when they did, finally, the answer to that was CDS drops. And um, I don't know if you're I'm sure you guys are familiar with those, but, you know, big parachute bundles out of uh, C-130s or C-17s, whichever. And um, all I know is... Pinpoint accuracy. Pinpoint <laughs> accuracy. Yeah, well, they just... It doesn't explode and send all your field. shit everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically like, hey, remember those palm grows we were talking about or you know, with the hedgerows, um, the, uh, I might be mixing up that terminology or not. Hedgerows is what I, you know, was all of what's there. You know, these, for, for those that are maybe listening and don't know, it's just huge, long mounds of dirt that are as tall as you are. And if you want to walk through that, you know, you either go up and down these rows or you go up and over. And so you can imagine taking, you know, in the beginning we had, my company or us 80 ish and then a koi however many guys those were they started pushing more koi's out to us mm. and at the end of it i want to say we had it like three and so you can imagine how much food that is 
on a daily basis and they just drop that from a C-130 on a pallet and it, it just shatters and lands all over these hedgerows. Mm-hmm. So that's an entire platoon to recover that for a yeah. day. And I yeah. lost that. And I'm like, I can't patrol those guys today because I need food and water. Um, so that was kind of the other big thing that, um, you know, we had to manage really early on. You know, I don't like to call people out on the podcast, but the Canadians love their tanks so much and they love their little badger. Surprise! I'm, I'm very disappointed that they didn't make the effort to, to bulldoze a road out. To plow it away to you and start. I think they did guys. after we left, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Didn't do us much good. Um, right. Yeah. But they, they love so. talking about how they were able to go anywhere in that AO with their with their tanks and their badgers. So <laughs> yeah. Canadians I'm calling you out. Yeah, drop the yeah. ball on that drop one. Drop the ball. <laughs> so um, nice. So you right. guys, their contacts really heavy at first. You're pushing out. You're kind of creating that bubble of presence that you're that you guys tried to establish. So mm-hmm. as it starts to wane and the operation starts winding down, um, you know especially when you guys gear up and you go back out east, like what was it like for you to continue into the rest of that deployment after this big, massive operation with a lot of contact? And I don't know if you guys, you know, taking casualties or anything. I hope not. It was, um, so actually on that. So I kind of mentioned that the IEDs, Mm -hmm. I I would, I want to say like, you know, in my, younger days i was thinking like this is important to keep numbers and statistics of like whatever we're doing not for accolades or nothing but just to kind of document like where this stuff is at historics and stuff and you know that kind of thing and i was reporting that up i didn't get a lot of information back from hire because all we had was like really crappy fm comms you know i carried a 117 golf out there and i think i was probably the only company who who brought a tough book initially and so I was actually sending emails back to my boss and trying to get that stuff back and whatever. I kept a decent log of that early on. And I want to say there was around 120 IEDs that were, um, that we cleared IED incidents. So some of those, I think I mentioned before, were like Daisy chained or houseborn or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want it. If memory serves me correct, I know we had a a one quadruple with the ANA and Mm -hmm. another, I'm not, you know, it's, it's, it's bad, but I don't even know what came of that guy. And then at least one other KIA and there might've been three to four casualties overall in the ANA. And on our side, we had one, we had one guy uh, who was an amputee. He lost his, lost his leg. Um, And, you know, might sound cliche, but it's just to like the credit to the team leader or the point man who, Mm. when he was told, you know, up in host, like, hey, you're going to get blown the hell up a lot. And they just, they were switched on, man. And so, you know, it, it wasn't like we were rock stars totally. The, you know, a lot of the stuff was lacking power sources or, you know, because that place had been vacated for the most part. There was no um, coalition elements out there. And, and there was a lot of bad dudes there, but mostly they were using that as sort of like a headquarters type area Mm -hmm. and so they had a lot of ieds and stuff established for more of like a defensive posture Mm -hmm. um and so when we came in you know luckily we caught them in a manner to where and they they did they did um prep the area so to speak with with some um kinetic strikes and things of that nature sure before we went in and so a lot of that was lacking but 
But the guy that was up front walking found every single one of those IEDs, whether it was like just something didn't look right, you know, maybe they was lucky enough where they saw a wire or something, you know, something sparkling out of the ground. But it wasn't a mine detector. It wasn't anything, you know, um, man pack carried or any other kind of stuff that, you know, you know, that's out there to detect IEDs. And it wasn't a dog. We had dogs out there all the time. And I would, you know, report back like these guys aren't finding anything, but please keep them out here because they're great for morale. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I guess all that to say, <laughs> I think you asked me how, how the mindset was going out of that. You know, it was just, it was a lot. And when we were leaving, um, you know, probably not unlike a lot of people's experiences in Afghanistan, but I remember going out of there, I wore the same set of ACUs for those 65 days. I think I had two or three t-shirts and socks that I kind of rotated between and would go squeeze out in the, whatever the, um, shit canal that was outside the Kalat. And, um, and, you know, hadn't had a haircut i was shaving because we had to do that and so we had to get rangers and stuff brought off to us a couple days into it and i got back to the priority um, battalion yeah the battalion cop and our um signal ncoic the s6 ncoic all those guys had already pushed out most of the battalion staff had left to go to um back to host and i think we must have been the last company or one of the last companies to come out and so we I, you know most of my guys are doing whatever, and I walk into the battalion um, talk, and everyone's gone. There's a couple people there. Just kind of look around. I walk up, get on a computer, and I'm sitting there, and I get this weird feeling somebody's like staring at me. And I like finally like look over, and this dude's like, "Sir, is that you?" And like this dude didn't even know who I was. You know, I knew him fairly well. He, you know, I'm company <laughs> commander. He's the S6 NCO I see, and right, you know pretty you know on, on the first name basis because we're in the army but he knows me and uh, i walked right in there and he's just like i don't even know who you were man like you look different <laughs> so um it's uh you know i'm sure that might have had something to do with dysentery and losing weight and things like that too but um yeah it was weird and then we just kind of moved on and it was like on to the next thing um and, and it was a new something new something fresh going back to the mountains you know do something totally different Okay. Yeah, I don't think you, it's really till you you have like a, some separation, look back on it, and you're like, yeah, that was kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the thing that sticks out to me is, um, but you're like you 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 as a company commander and like your guys, they got the infantry experience. Uh, you know, like just going into an area full of bad dudes, hanging out for a long period of time, and just trying to fuck shit up you know like that's yeah. a that was a yeah. that's a very infantry experience which is yeah kind of something that penjway offered up a lot of to in varying degrees you know it offered up the infantry experience in a lot of ways and i feel like you know the gwat in some ways especially like iraq and in different parts of afghanistan you know especially in iraq like the infantry experience was not quite as rudimentary as it was in places like afghanistan and penjway where you literally land yeah. you stay you fight, you walk, you know, you, you carry walk. all your shit, yeah. you live out of compounds, like you walk some more, you fight. So that, you know, that's, that's a unique experience for you to take away as a, yeah. as an officer. It's, it's really kind of a roll of the dice, I think, because, you know, you could be a truck driver or something and, and be in the shit every day mm-hmm. or you could not, you know, you could mm-hmm. be an infantry guy and, um, 
same kind of thing like yeah go a whole deployment and for just whatever circumstances but mm-hmm. you know then the other side of it though it's almost kind of weird because if it feels like it was shitty it's really kind of hard to say it was because like no matter how shitty things are as an infantryman you're like eh, it's kind of supposed to be yeah. right <laughs> or you're always thinking that somebody else had somebody it worse else has it. Yeah, yeah somebody else right. has it worse that was what I was someone's doing. got a, a, a worse story than i do for sure mm-hmm. right. lots of people of course but and um, that's why people who actually experienced shit don't talk about shit because a they have they have the the common sense not to go out and brag and B, they're terrified that somebody's got a worse story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and it's you know it's, it's weird being vulnerable. Now I'm a little bit far away enough of it, but it's a lot of the stuff is you know, I took my job pretty seriously and I wanted to do a good job. I certainly didn't think I was awesome or the best at it, um, but I was trying to do good and I was trying to keep people alive and be effective. Mm. And so you know, looking back, almost anything I could kind of critique and be like, oh, it sounds like kind of a dumbass, you know. But it's uh. You know, at the end of the day, it was, it's just where, you know, where we were at. It was pretty real, so. Mm. And you remember what, what like, the, the day, month, year date is that you guys left Panjway? I do not. I'm just pretty sure it was 62 or 65 days. Mm. I think. Gotcha. I think it was 65, to be honest. Mm. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I'm pretty – I could go back and look – and, and see where important. I my <laughs> Gmail um, sure. black hole is or whatever because <laughs> I probably like sent some cryptic email to someone you know before I left mm-hmm. like hey talk to you later wink wink and like you know whatever like mm-hmm. later's going to be a long time <laughs> and so right. um, you know I, I remember uh, I was trying to buy a house at that time <laughs> or my <laughs> spouse was and yeah. she like sent this paperwork to my XO who was not out with us. He was actually, I kept him back because mm. we needed somebody back there to kind of manage all the sure. logistics and stuff. And that was a shitty, I mean, that, I, that would have sucked. I would hate to be the guy in the company who didn't get to go out there. Mm. Um, and uh, I remember him calling me up over FM radio one time trying to talk to me about that. And I was like, get off the net, man. Like, don't talk to me about my <laughs> mortgage <laughs> over FM right now. Yeah. Um, I actually bought my first house from Afghanistan as well, but uh, yeah, as, as well as living the the good pogue life as a pilot, and I could have internet access to whenever I wanted, yeah. so it was a little bit of a easier experience. <laughs> that <laughs> I was might not have been FM radio from the horse. <laughs> that might not have been my most embarrassing encounter over the radio either, because when the koi was coming out, I, I remember it was really weird and awkward how we established. Um, mm like communications or whatever call signs and stuff we exchanged and then at one point when he was actually it was while they were trying to do one of their convoys out he tried to establish radio comms with us on our net and he came over and he was like what i don't know what he said he was but he was like uh this is something something something. i'm calling for dave and i was like what what (laughs) and then like one of the platoons started sitting with me he starts cracking up and he was like sir i think he's trying to ask for you and i was like what and he kept saying dave my first name's david and he's like mm-hmm. hey, I'm, I'm calling for dave and i'm like holy shit and i was like hey this is uh yeah i want to say we were going off some goofy call signs at the time it wasn't the normal company ones I was like this is uh red six 
go ahead. And he's like, yes, I am looking for Dave. And I'm like, this is Red Six. Go ahead. And he's like, yes, I am looking for Dave. And I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. This is Dave. Go ahead. You know, so it was, um, yeah, it was interesting. I've got well, one of my, one of my favorite, like, workarounds in army comms is whenever they want to address somebody by their actual name, they always say, hey, is Codename Curtis there? Codename, yeah. Curtis. Who cares? To tell a man can know what my name is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't <laughs> Good luck finding Dave. <laughs> yeah. So, Dave, the, the rest of your deployment, you went back to, to P2K. What was uh, what was it like until you guys finally got to go home? Um, That was a pretty cool gig i would say like i feel like i've been lucky in a lot of my deployments you know we went like that was obviously the shittiest um you know most austere type of environment we went back up there and we actually operated out of host and so they kind of used us as like a you know they were calling um like ftfs and stuff at the time where they would sort of take a company and move them up to the brigade level and just have them go out and do air assaults and things like that and sort of um you know, I think the issue up there was you had these guys on cops, similar situation that I described in, um, you know, in, in Panjway or Zangabad is where it's like, okay, if someone drops a CDS bundle, I got to send a platoon for an entire day to get that. Right. You know, if I want to go do this, I got to send these guys, you know, it's just the austere, the difficulty of the train. There's a lot of obstacles to actually get out and do what you'd like to do and um keep everything running and especially you know i didn't even have any infrastructure and so if you had you know guard posts and all these other things um obviously we had to keep security but just the other maintenance of running a cop guys can't project combat power very well and so when they brought us back up it was like hey you're only going to be here i want to say we were back up there for maybe a month or something like that mm-hmm. and um or two months and it was like okay when we go back up there we're not going to fix you to a battle space you're just going to go do air assaults and so um, we went up into Zambar and just kind of did, you know, we'd go out air assault, just do these clearing operations. And I actually got to go out there, you know, as a fellow company commander out at, um, where was he at? Um, one of the outposts is up there. Um, it, was, it was near Zambar, uh, northeast of, northwest of Host. Anyhow, I got to go up there. Um, land on his HLZ, go into the cop, sit there, talk with him about his AO, and be like, okay, like, where would you, what would you do if you had a, a bunch of people to go do stuff for you right now? And we'd talk about the area, whatever, and like, all right, I'm gonna go do an op here, and we'd coordinate it. And it was me, I'd push out there. Um, the there were some task force folks there that were having a hard time um, doing targeting during the daytime, and so he was like, hey, you know, this is convenient for me you're going out during the day i'm gonna send like two squads with you my jtac um i'll let you use my ds birds all kinds of stuff like so it was just you know couldn't have been better for me yeah um i mean that's a a pretty sweet that's pretty sweet gig to fall into yeah not having to own own the space and be able to just kind of like be you know mercenaries for the ao basically yeah 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 and it was cool you know Especially as a young officer, I imagine that would be a, a lot of fun. Yeah, had a lot of assets and stuff too that are disposable. You know, we got more ISR and things like that than you would we would have typically had, um, just because of the, um, you know, we had other folks kind of piggybacking off our operation to do. You know, we were kind of worked in coordination with them, and so they were trying to do some collection and stuff. And um, yeah, it worked out well for both of us. So 
Nice. Um, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so um, I guess, um, yeah. What was kind of like the big takeaway for you from from the Panjway experience? Like on you know, be it, be it personal level, be it a professional level. Like what what was the thing when you walked away from your to your sixty two to five days that really yeah. just you carried forward? Um. Yeah, there's probably different things that I would have taken away depending on like I guess what direction I was looking at it from. I'd have to pull it up, you know, so kind of a story that goes along with it, of course. Mm-hmm. Um I'm out there at one point and of course back at whatever time they decided it was okay to fly helicopters in there again. You know, we had this um opium field north of us, Poppy, um, that uh I keep saying opium, it's a poppy field. Mm-hmm. Uh the, whoever owned it and um we were using it as an hlz of course he came back later and wanted a bunch of money because i had been flying aircraft on it or whatever and he couldn't harvest or whatever out of it but um they cleared that thing out and you know i realized my my battalion commander's coming in to talk to me okay cool like get along with this guy great love him no no pressure can't wait to talk to him shows up my outpost is like second story in one of these collats i got like a big blown up um, Falcon View map on it. My uh, 117 golf hanging there, and one of the dudes who was like a, a human terrain team dude had been a carpenter in a previous life, and he like went around and like pulled nails out of a bunch of random crap and like fastened a desk for me and had my little you know laptop sitting there. So I'm, I'm sitting in there. Boss comes in and I'm getting ready to walk up. All right, sir, let me tell you what's going on on the AO. And he's like, stop. Before you start saying anything, I want you to wait one second. I got someone I want to hear this. And then uh, in come walks this reporter. I had no idea this dude's coming. Mm. And was, he's like, hey, this is such and such. He's from NPR. And then his buddy sticks a mic in front of me like, okay, go. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> all right. And so I start telling, you know, telling him what I was like, whatever. I'm just going with what I got because, you know, I ain't mm-hmm. worried about this. And um you know, there's like gunshots going on in the back. And I remember them looking at me and being like, what was that? And I was like, that was gunfire. And I, you know, I'm aware of the, the bigger political implications and storyline and, you know, somewhat, you know, I'm not overly concerned with it, but I don't want to say things that's like gonna, you know, kick us in the ass. And so he's like, what was that? And I was like, it was gunfire. He's like, who was it? And I'm like, it's probably the ANA. Oh, what are they shooting at? No idea. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just sort of like uh, sign of the times, you yeah, know, because yeah. we, we did have a lot of contact. We Sometimes it was from them. Mm-hmm. You know, you go out on a patrol and come back, you have no idea. And those guys were, um, you know, they got they, were, they outnumbered us like three to one at one point. And so they were getting angry about stuff. Um, we were, we were, I won't get into specifics about it, but there were funds being used to do certain things in the area and the way that all worked out we were holding shuras trying to bring people back in all this stuff was going on you know in the midst of that tom bowman i don't know if you guys know who are familiar with him actually a pretty cool dude tom bowman from npr comes in um if you look him up he's pretty prominent you actually type in my name in google and this interview will probably pop up and it's still out there on the interwebs this audio interview and i would pull it up at from time to time just to see you know get nostalgic or whatever and listen to it and i would start to see where different news outlets were smaller ones albeit but they were taking this soundbite and drawing like these implications of it 
and sort of making a storyline and a narrative out of it. And I'm just like, whoa, like, you know, that was exactly what I was trying to avoid. Like me saying something and then getting put in some, pasted in some news article somewhere and taken out of context. And, um, you know, I guess to say all that, to say like it, that's just what it was. It was weird. It was stranger than fiction, man. It was like in one end of it, it's like me and all these guys that, you know, we could spare you this sappy stuff, but go watch band of brothers or whatever. And it's like all me and my dudes, man, you know, I don't even like to say it's my, it's not my company. It's us. It's like, we're there and we're doing this thing. And then you're like, for what? And you know, it, you can go down a really dark place when you start asking questions. And, um, you know, when I look back at it today, it's just, you know, if I'm being honest, I'm, I'm sort of indifferent to it. Um, and, you know, people can like or dislike that. It's just how I feel today. You know, when I look back and it's kind of like, it's just something I did. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've got fond memories. I got shitty memories. It seems kind of cool when you talk about it, like most things in your life, like, it's cool to talk about it after the fact, but it sucks in the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess you got to go through really shitty times to have a cool story someday. Mm. And uh, that's kind of what it is to me. Yeah, <laughs> I went through some really shitty stuff and I've got cool stories about it. And I love it when, you know, um, the, the biggest difference between being a platoon leader to me and being a company commander, they're both really cool jobs. And after being a company commander, I realized like, this is sort of the end of the road for me. Like I don't have much aspirations after this. Mm. Um, you know, I'm still in this army, but I didn't really want to go on and be, you know, anything else at a higher level than that echelon wise. But, um, the difference between the platoon leader and the company commander role was like this, the level of, um, intimacy you'd have with the soldiers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's really something that I liked as a platoon leader. It was like me and the guys, you know, like we're out doing stuff. Um, just a bunch of dudes doing dude stuff. And um, as a company commander, it got to be a little bit less of that. And I had to, I found myself much more in that position. The old thing they say where it's like, um, you know, um, whatever the adage is about things being, being right and hard, you know, um, I had to make decisions that I knew were not popular. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I knew in my mind, there was nothing more than like, this is what will save lives mm-hmm. in my mind. I could have been wrong, of course. Um, but that just, that started to kind of suck and I was okay with it. You know, I was like, Hey, this is my responsibility. You know, like the decision to keep people patrolling, the decision to do certain things. It's like, I'm not, I can't go easy on guys, um, that in a way that's going to cost lives. And, um, you know, every now and then again, I'll get like a squad leader or a platoon sergeant reach out to me and talk to me. And I'm like, ah, maybe I didn't do so bad, you know? And, um, those are pretty good moments. And, um, you know, there's a couple of them that I stay in contact pretty closely and pretty regularly. And it's, you know, I get to hear their experiences of like, ah, oh, you wouldn't believe what this guy did, you know, PLs and company commanders after me. Um, but that's cool. You know, it's just something I did one day. Hopefully that touches on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Well, well, David, the uh, the way we kind of wrap these things up usually, and you kind of already did it, so if you don't have anything else to add, that's totally fine. <laughs> but uh, we kind of give you the, the the end of the podcast to say your piece or say anything we didn't get a chance to talk about or uh, bring a attention to a charity or an organization that you're passionate about. So from here to the end, man, the floor is yours. Yeah. Okay. So um, one, just yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I was like, you know, I I, uh, I saw what you guys were doing, and I was like, this is kind of cool, you know. Um, 
I think it's really cool to, uh, you know, I would say military service, a couple of the things in my life that I've dealt with, um, you know, you can hear things in your life and then you're like, oh, that kind of makes sense. But then all of a sudden it really makes sense. And you're like, oh, okay. Like I didn't know what that was. And I think this is sort of like, it's therapeutic, right? It's therapeutic for me to get to tell my story. Um, hopefully it helps someone else that hears a story and they're like, yeah, that wasn't me, just me, you know? And, um, it's the dichotomy of it too, is like, you know, you see someone who is squared away in life and made it far, or at least this is for me, I look at a guy, oh, he's a doctor, he's a lawyer, but he f did some of the stupid shit I did and he fucked up just like I did. It's like, oh, it doesn't make me such a bad person maybe. Um, and then there's the other side of it where it's like, you get the guy who also isn't afraid to like get real and hang it out there and be like, this is what I think and how I feel. And it's batshit crazy, but I'm, but I'm honest. And you're like, ah, I'm not so fucking crazy because I'm not the only one that thinks that way. And so that's what a lot of this is for me. And so I appreciate the chance to do that. You know, initially um, I saw this and I was like, ah, I should um, hook you guys up with a squad leader or platoon siren or somebody from, because, you know, and I was like, this is a kind of a small piece of this story that, um, you know, maybe hasn't been told yet. And so, um, but it worked out this way and I appreciate the opportunity to do it. And um, the one thing that I would plug is uh, a former coworker of mine, guy I still kind of stay in touch with, um, started this thing called Objective Zero. I don't know if you guys have seen that or are familiar with it, um, but you can find them on any social media platform, probably mostly Facebook and uh, Instagram. But more importantly, if you go to whatever iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your apps, um, and look up Objective Zero, it's an application that this dude and some other people have put a ton of work into. Mm. And um, it's it's come a really long way. And essentially what it is, is it's just a, a place for um, people like us, veterans, to um, be able to connect and lift each other up. But it's it's a, it's anonymous and it's free, um, uh, discreet and um you know, the, the term objective zero kind of comes from, um, the, the effort to prevent veteran suicide. Sure. So, you know, that being the primary objective, but it's really more than that. It's, you know, whether it's just getting on there and, you know, helping somebody out, someone reaches out for help, you can communicate a ton of different ways. Um, and so I'd encourage anyone to get on there, whether it's, you know, you never know when you might need it yourself, but even more importantly, um, if you can be there for someone else, that'd be great too. You know, a lot of times when, when you're having a bad day, um, helping someone else can get you out of your own head. And so that's a great way to do it. Um, so objective zero, um, please look it up and, and give it a shot. If you got a chance. Cool. Yeah. yeah man. And we'll, we'll throw it into the, uh, the show notes. Uh, I've got the website pulled up here so everyone can, uh, can check, check it out. out. I did find your NPR interview, so I'll if you, be if you want, I'll put that in there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it, man. It's cool. I'd, I'd love to see if the uh, linked political commentary after it is still there. It's, no, it's, it's not. I just did. No. I did a quick. Uh, okay, quick, okay. Quick scan reason. of it. Yeah. Good. They wipe that part out. Yeah. Uh, so. well, well, David, we uh, appreciate you coming on, man, and appreciate you yeah. kind of shine a light on a little piece of enjoy history that we didn't know existed. So it's cool to have you on, and yeah. and uh, appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Season 3 of the Panjway Podcast. We appreciate you sticking with us all the way to the end of the episode. 
But just one more thing before you go, please hit the like and subscribe button and make sure that you are following us on our social media.